أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وآله الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد السلام عليكم everybody and welcome to this session of Shia Imamia Doctrine on Mizan Live so this week um, Continuing with our topic of controversial issues that pertain to uh, the Shia, some of the some of those issues that the Shia might be have might believe in that others who do not adhere to the Shi'i school of thought of Islam might misunderstand sometimes might find some fault in. As you all know, um, and as I said before, we finished the. Uh, conventional uh, part of Aqaid and Islamic beliefs in this book and after he was done with that Ayatollah Subhani was done with that he moved into uh, these controversial topics topics such as Bada that we covered before topics such as uh, Tawassul intercession these kinds of things Bid'ah what is the what is what what is that line and what is that what what is it that divides kufr from iman and belief from disbelief and so on and so forth <coughs> things like that <coughs> this week he wants to speak about uh, raj'a a topic that we have in the shi'i school of thought and i can say that it is a sheerly shi'i ta- belief that we have and it goes like this um, and before I explain it, and, I'm, and hopefully I remember this towards the end when more people have logged in as well, or logged on. Um, this belief, this belief of raj'a, is a belief that you don't necessarily as a Shia have to have to be a Shia. Yes, mainstream Shi'i, maybe you can say right now, believes in this concept of raj'a. Our main scholars who... Uh, contemporary main scholars of theology and Islamic beliefs, they hold, they believe in this belief uh, because it has many hadiths, many many hadiths for it, such that a person it's hard for them to uh, not have such a belief. But having said all of that, at the end of the day, uh, our these same scholars will tell you that it's one of those beliefs that is not one of the foundations and fundamentals of Islam. And so even if someone isn't convinced about it, the way we're going to talk about going forward, doesn't necessarily mean that they're not a Shia anymore. Alright, so let alone Muslim even. So having said that, let's talk about Raj'a. In article 129, Ayatollah Subhani, he says, In the Arabic language, Raj'a means to return. In Shi'i terminology, it denotes the return of a group of Muslims to this world after the appearance of the Mahdi and before the resurrection. Evidence for the possibility of such an occurrence is forthcoming first and foremost from the Qur'an. Okay, so what does Raj'a mean? Raj'a means to return. And in a theological context, um, and in a Shi'i theological context, it means that a group of people are going to return. A group of people who have died, they've passed away many, many years ago maybe even, will return to this dunya for whatever reason it is. That, that's something to understand from the hadiths. Will return to this dunya, will come back to life again. Yes, and they will continue with a life that they have. Some of them were, are really righteous people, some of them are really evil people. The evil people will be punished and the righteous uh, will, be, it will be the opposite. They will be given sovereignty and, and, and they will be given authority. They were the ones who were supposed to be um, in charge of things, but they weren't. In a nutshell, that Allah is going to give them that which they deserved, even in this life, before He takes them to the next life. Someone might say, you know, punishment and reward is for the next life. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to, apparently, wants to make sure that even their, what was due for them is given and granted to them in this life even. So the mustad'afin are the, one who are the ones who will be coming back and uh, will take over. 
in, in a sense. And those who are very, very evil will be brought back so that proper due punishment is given to them even in this life and then they go to Jahannam. Something like that. Now, he's not going to get into these details. That's why I'm just sharing with them, them with you right now. He doesn't get into these details. These details come from our hadiths. What he tries to do right now is, he says in Surah Naml, verse 84, we have this idea of people returning before the day of resurrection. We have that. Well, we say, okay, tell us about it. He says, look at the verses. Verse 84 of Surah Naml. It says, well, if I'm not mistaken here, it says verse 83. Let me check real quick. This, let me pull this up. Because my the book says 84, the translation says 83. While it's coming up, I'll just continue explaining. Alright, so. The verse itself is this, And the day when we shall gather out of every nation a host of those who denied our revelations, and they will be set in array. What's the Arabic? The Arabic is, وَيَوْمَ نَحْشُرُ مِن كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ فَوْجًا مِمَّا يُكَذِّبُ بِآيَاتِنَا فَهُمْ يُوزَعُونَ The verse says there's going to be a day where a group of, from every nation, a group is going to be resurrected. نَحْشُرُ حَشُر means to resurrect and to bring back to life as if. So here we have this idea of people being resurrected. But then someone might say, well, that's the day of judgment, right? Well, two reasons why he says, we don't believe that this verse is talking about the day of resurrection. Why? Number one, it says we're going to, out of every nation, we will only resurrect a group. While we all know that on the day of resurrection, everyone's going to be resurrected, not just a group from every nation. So that's number one. So this must be talking about another day. Another reason he says, that we know this is, another, this is not referring to the Day of Judgment, it's referring to some other day, is because a few verses later, it talks about how there's going to be a day where everyone is resurrected, or everyone dies, excuse me, when the trumpet is blown into. Right? Let me pull this verse up real quick, give you the exact address. This is verse... 83. Okay, so the translation is right here. Verse 83 and 87. 83 is the verse that says, one group from every nation will be resurrected. Verse 87 of Surah Naml, which is a couple of verses later, says, وَيَوْمَ يُنْفَخُ فِي الصُّورِ فَفَزِعَ مَنْ فِي السَّمَوَاتِ وَمَنْ فِي الْأَرْضِ إِلَّا مَنْ شَاءَ اللَّهُ وَهُوَ وَكُلٌّ أَتَوْهُ دَاخِرِينَ That, and the day when the trumpet will be blown, and all who are in the heavens and the earth will, start, will startle in fear except those whom Allah wills, and all come unto Him humbled. So you see, this verse, which is a few verses after the first one that we covered, is speaking about a day where um, everyone is going to be resurrected, or everyone's going to be startled in fear. And when is that? That's when the first trumpet is blown into, and everyone dies after that trumpet is blown into. So he says, look, when you bring these two in the same context, in the same set of verses, the first one talking about a day that something like this happens where a group from every nation is resurrected. And then a few verses later you talk about a day where everyone's going to die and after that everyone's going to get resurrected. Then you can easily conclude that okay, that first day that only a group from every nation are dying is different than this day that everyone's going to be dying in. Or excuse me, that day that a group from every nation is going to be resurrected is different than this day where everyone's going to die in. I think it's a good point he makes. I, I haven't checked the other commentaries out there and tafsirs of Quran to find out if you know this is something widely held by our scholars. But at the end of the day, he is making this claim and he's using these verses. Now, as I said, we might have tens and tens and tens of verses about Raj'ah. And if I'm not mistaken, I even read one time that we have hundreds of, of hadiths about it. So I don't know about that. I haven't, that also requires an, a comprehensive study. And I know that some scholars have done that. But all in all, if we have so many hadiths, the question is, why is he going to refer to a verse of the Qur'an that might not be very clearly implying that there is going to be such thing as raj'ah, that some people are going to return before the day of resurrection? That's the question. Why are you going to use a verse that is not so clear? 
The answer is that he's going to try his best to also use Qur'an because there's going to be people who are not from the Shi'i school of thought who will not believe in those hadiths that we might cite and we might rely on to prove the concept of Raj'ah. So that's something to keep in mind. He says, as can be seen, the verses above speak of two days, the first of which turns one's attention to the second. As regards the first day, there is mention made of the revival only of a particular group. Whilst as regards the second day, the death of the whole of mankind is mentioned. We observe then that the first day is other than the day of resurrection. <clears throat> he goes on to say, a comparison between these two verses in the surah and Naml reveals that the world is awaiting two days on one on one of which some and on the other of which all souls will be revived. Saying trans sayings and hadiths transmitted in the Shi'i tradition maintain that the first day pertains to the period after the appearance of the Mahdi and before the day of resurrection. That's where Raj'ah takes place. Raj'ah means meaning the revival and return of some people. As I said, who these people are is a, is a long story. All those details have to come from our hadiths because the concept itself can only be taken from hadiths. And barely maybe this verse or these couple of verses that we, we, we went over right now a few minutes ago. All right. The, the return to life in this world of a group of righteous or wicked souls before the resurrection should not then give rise to astonishment. Okay, I think, I don't know if you've noticed or not, he still has not actually explained the boundaries of this concept who's going to come who's not going to come why are they coming nothing like that he's covered it would have it was befitting i i very humbly believe for him to have said first exactly what this concept is he keeps hinting at it um in the lines that we are reading the return to life in this world of a group of righteous or wicked souls before the resurrection should not then give rise to astonishment. So you see right there, he gives us some details. Okay, there's going to be some wicked people and there's going to be some righteous people who return. But that's not the point he wants to make here. He's saying that on the side. He says, this idea of people coming back should not be surprising. Why? Because some people are going to say, what do you mean people are going to rise from the dead before resurrection day? He says, for in previous communities and nations also there were groups who, after their death, returned again to life. And after a time passed away for a second time. Here, he gives in the footnote examples of this, of people who would die and would come back to life again. Don't think just because someone died, they're never going to come back before the day of resurrection. Although the rule is when you die, it's over. But there is an ex there are exceptions. It's always possible. And so it's not impossible. No one can say it's impossible when you die to not come back to life. Now someone might say, well, that's reincarnation. We'll talk about that. No, it's not reincarnation, he says. But before that, he gives examples. He says, for example, how a group of Bani Israel, after they died, were brought back to life in Surah Baqarah, verses 55 and 56. He says, it's talking about that. Or the revival of the person who was killed of the Bani Israel. He was revived. The story goes like this, brothers and sisters. If you all, as you all know, Surah Baqarah, the longest surah in the Quran, talks about, and the reason why it's titled the Baqarah, talks about a very important lesson that is learned from the cow of Bani Israel about how Allah just commanded them to do something, they just wanted to run away from it and avoid it, and so they kept asking for more details regarding that responsibility God had put on their shoulders. And so Allah says in the Qur'an that Allah told them, إِنَّ اللَّهِ يَأْمُرُكُمْ أَنْ تَذْبَحُوا بَقَرَةً Prophet Musa told them, God says, hey, you know, sacrifice a cow. But then they said, well, give us some details. <clears throat> I'm just going to pull up the translation and read off of it to you. And when, and when Moses said to his people, Indeed Allah commands you to slaughter a cow. They said, Do you take us in derision? He said, I seek Allah's protection lest I should be one of the senseless. They said, Are you kidding? And he said, Look, I'm not one of the... This is, these, are not things, these are not matters to joke about. God says, Slaughter a cow. Finished. They said, Invoke your Lord for us. 
that he may clarify for us what she may be, that cow. How is it supposed to be? He said, Allah says, she is a cow neither old nor young, of a middle age. Now do what you're commanded. But they said, invoke your Lord for us, that he may clarify for us what her color may be. He said, Allah says, she is a cow that is yellow, of a bright hue, pleasing to the onlookers. They, so do it, do it. <laughs> you're making it harder on yourself. They said, invoke your Lord for us, that he may clarify for us what she may be. Indeed, all cows are much alike to us. And if Allah wishes, we surely will be guided and will do what we're supposed to do. He said, Allah says, She is a cow not broken to till the earth or to water the tillage, sound and without blemish. So if you want to find a cow to kill, to slaughter, you have to find a cow without any blemishes of a yellow color. Think about it, brothers and sisters. How many of those types of cows can one find even today? And so... It says, they said, okay, now you've come with the truth. Thank you for letting us know what we need to do. Well, if God wanted from day one for you to do something like this, He would have told you all these details from the get-go. He didn't mention any details, meaning He wasn't interested in any details. But you're the ones who made it hard on yourselves. You brought it upon yourselves. And uh, the, narr the, the, the narrations tell us that, yeah, it was a, it was a cow that was not very easily... Uh, found and they couldn't find it and they when they eventually found it they had to pay big money for that cow and says so they said Bani Israel said now you have come with the truth and they slaughtered it though they were about not to do it so that's how cl they were that close to not even doing this uh, fulfilling this responsibility of God that God had put on their shoulders anyway someone might ask what's the point of all this well when we look at the, the verses, if we go down, so this was verses 67 till 70, or no, 71 of Surah Baqarah. This is the part that I want to talk about now, because we're talking about reviving from the dead. Verses 72 till 72 to 73 talk about you know why this cow had to be slaughtered to begin with. Turns out someone had killed someone else in Bani Israel and they were looking for the killer but they couldn't find him. And so they take their case to Prophet Musa that we want to find who killed this man. And so Prophet Musa told them, Allah says first slaughter a cow. And that's where this whole story goes. After they killed the cow and everything, the verse says, verse 73 says that we said, strike the cow with a piece of it. What they turn, eventually ended up doing was, they were told to take one of the bones of this cow that they had slaughtered, to touch it to that dead person. That person came to life and pointed out who his killer was. Right? And so now they knew who the killer was. This is the story of verse 72 and 73. This is the part of the story of the cow usually people are not aware of. That this whole idea of slaughtering a cow, there was a reason for it. And Bani Israel had asked for help from God and God had told them, this is the condition. This is the way I want you to do it and this is the way you'll get your answer. Anyway, Ayatollah Subhanahu says, this is also one of those cases where you find that someone came back to life according to the Quran. So don't be surprised about this. This should not be a deal breaker for you in believing in raj'ah, the fact that, oh, how are people supposed to come back to life? No, it happens if God wills. Another example, uh, it talks about, he talks about verse 243 of Surah Baqarah. Verse 243 of Surah Baqarah also, let me pull it up real quick. Talks about a group of people coming back to life. It doesn't say who they were, but it does speak about how have you not regarded those who left their homes in thousands, apprehensive of death, they were trying to flee death, whereupon Allah said to them, die. Now, they all, they all passed away. Then He revived them, brought them back to life. Indeed, Allah is gracious to mankind, but most people do not give thanks. Apparently, Allah, I haven't checked the tafsir of this verse and the story behind it, but apparently they, Allah wanted to show them that, look, if you try to flee death, death will come to you if I wish it and will it. It's not something you can flee from. 
Apparently they weren't supposed to do that. And they were supposed to put their trust in God, something like that. But they didn't. They relied on their own fleeing to, to help them. Allah showed them that's not the case. And then He revived them now with this monotheistic uh, perspective. That look, I do what I, what I need to do. There's no running away from it. There is a person by the name of Uzair. The verses of Quran don't speak about him by name, but they speak about him. Um, where Surah Baqarah verse 259, where he was passing by a village or a town that had been destroyed because, you know, it was old. And it, the thought crosses his mind, like, uh, can God really revive these things all the way back again? And Allah takes his life for a hundred years and brings him back and revives him to show him that, yes, I can. This is Surah Baqarah verse 259. So the Quran refers to him as him. It doesn't say his name, Uzair. Anyway, or him who came upon a township as it lay fallen on its trellises. He said, how will Allah revive this after its death? So Allah made him die for a hundred years. Then he resurrected him. He said, how long have you remained? He said, I have remained a day or part of a day. That's how long, you know, I was here. He said, Allah said, rather you have remained a hundred years. Now look at your food and drink which have not rotted. Then look at your uh, donkey. This was done that we may make you a sign for mankind. And look at the bones, how we arrange them and then clothe them with flesh. So he brings this donkey back to life again. When it became evident to him, you know, that Allah does everything that he wills, he said, I know that Allah has power over all things. So this is also a story where the Qur'an is telling us directly that, look, people can come back to life if Allah wishes. And of course, the story of Prophet Jesus, Prophet Isa, bringing back to life people who have passed away. We all know about that. The reason why he doesn't cite the Ashabul Kahf as an example of this, brothers and sisters, who slept for 309 years, is that... The Qur'an doesn't say they died. It says they were sleeping for 309 years. So that's not going to be an example for this one. Anyway, let's move on. So now, we need to get it towards, uh, move towards this whole idea of resurrection not being the same thing as... Um, uh, Resurrection not being the same as reincarnation. So let me read this question that we just got. So for those resurrected, good or wicked, do any of their actions post-resurrection count? That is to say, if someone is resurrected, then they know the truth as something manifest and apparent, and so presumably their test is over. So anything they do, good or bad, should not be counted, I would think. Also, I've heard that if the truth is manifest, apparent, and so the test is over, then life for that person should also be over, like with Fir'aun. So how does all that work? Very good question. I love it. The answer I would say, I don't like sounding like I know the answer to things, but you know, something that could be said as an answer to this good question would be that for those people who are resurrected and come back to life again, it seems, based on my limited knowledge of these hadiths, is that this is merely a reward for them a reward for them because they were so good. As I said, very righteous people will be coming back and very wicked people will be coming back. The very righteous people that come back, it's a reward for them. I would personally feel that because they were so righteous and deserved to come back, that is a bonus for them that although they've seen the good of the, uh, they've seen the truth in the barzakh and in their afterlife, and when they come back, they are aware of certain things, they still have that opportunity to do good. I think that that is a bonus for them. Um, they would have been well off and good and, and good to go anyway. You get what I'm saying? They didn't have anything to worry about anyway. So they're good to go. So now God gives them a bonus of you know being able to add to that more. And that's why you see in these du'as, for example, um, du'a al-ahd, for example, that du'a that is said to be recited for forty mor- in forty mornings, uh, like in, during Fajr time and Bayn al-Tulu'ain sometime. It says, "Oh Allah, resurrect me so that I am with Him. I am with the twelfth Imam. I serve Him, you know, and I'm alongside Him. Why? Because that's a great honor. 
And so why is it so what if it's a great honor? Well when when you're when you're next to him that is something that that uh, yields Allah's satisfaction. So these people are asking for something that Allah's satisfaction will will entail Allah's satisfaction. So I would say it's a big exception to this rule that you mentioned that once we see the truth there is no there is no turning back. Well, if you qualify because you've been super righteous and you're going to be well off anyway, you th- then you can come back. As for the wicked, they can come back, but it's it's a punishment for them. The very wicked ones who are brought back, they are brought back just to be punished here. And so if they come back, their repentance, of course, will not have any value and it won't help them at all. So in other words, if you are evil, coming back isn't going to help you. The deeds that you do or the things that you say, the, re- the repentance that you might have won't have any effect. But on the flip side, Allah's grace and mercy encompasses those who were very good and they... Since they were good and they qualified, they get an extra chance for bonus points. You get what I'm saying? They'll get that opportunity for bonus uh, Jannah points, let's call it. Alright. Moving on to this uh, idea of, hopefully that answered your question to an extent. This idea of... uh, Reincarnation. Well, this is the same thing as reincarnation, one may say. One may say. Let's read. It says, The return of persons to life in this world does not conflict with reason, nor with sources transmitted by tradition. For as we have seen, the Qur'an explicitly um, refers to this return in respect of past communities. And there can be no better evidence than this for upholding the possibility of this phenomenon. In other words, the best way to prove something is possible to, is to show that it has happened. Okay? That's the best way to prove something is possible. Like for example, someone might say, hey, is it possible for a person to fly in the sky? Then you show them a plane, you say, look, it's happening. So I guess it's possible. Here also, someone might say, is it even possible for people to come back and be resurrected after they died? Before, res- before the day of resurrection, answer, well, it's happened. Who says? Quran says. Another question, is Raj'a for Imams and past Prophets as well? You probably already answered this, I missed it. No, we didn't talk about it because he didn't talk about it. What's for sure is apparently based on our hadiths again, that some of the Imams will return. I don't know about the Prophets. Um, As I said, I haven't done comprehensive research into the actual hadiths uh, in this regard. Hopefully one day we can do that uh, for our our Imam Mahdi course that we need to develop for Mizan. Institute, but because um, Raja will fall under that category on, on topic. Um, <laughs> and so someone says, uh, so it's overtime. <laughs> uh, what's it called? For those people who come back, it's overtime. Anyway, um, this question of past prophets, I don't know. I'm not sure. But I do know that they say the Imams will return. For example, I've heard that the Hadith, some of them say that for example, Imam Hussein will return and he will get so old that uh, his eyebrows will cover, will be growing over his eyes. Now this might be m- m- symbolic of how long he's going to be here and live in this world. So this is interesting. If one is going to go based on hadiths, we won't split the world up into three phases. You know, our life on this earth and then our life in the barzakh and then the hereafter. It would be better to say that we can split this world up into four phases and stages. One, life on this earth. Two, Raj'a and Barzakh and then Qiyamah. Raj'a itself is going to be apparently based on these hadith, some of them, is going to be a long period of time where you know people like the Imams are going to live for a long time. So once again, this is all coming from hadiths. Uh, there's no other way to actually explore this idea further. So we'll see what the details are there. That requires a little bit more of a comprehensive study. And it's interesting that he has not brought any of those details in this article. And this is the only article that he discusses um, Raj'a in. So it's interesting. Anyway, there are some who regard the return and Raj'a to mean the same thing as uh, reincarnation, Tanasukh. Such an idea is utterly baseless, he says. For why? For reincarnation holds that a soul, after dying, regains its life anew, either starting out from the embryonic state or else by entering another body. 
Raj'a, on the other hand, has nothing to do with either of these false ideas. And if you remember, we covered, uh, we had, a, I think, a pretty good session on uh, reincarnation in the past as well. When we were discussing, when we were discussing ma'ad and resurrection. Anyway, it says it has nothing to do with these two false ideas. The principal authority for upholding the validity of the doctrine of the return of Raj'a is derived from the revival of the dead in past communities and the bodily resurrection on the day of judgment. It's based on that. The same person, the same body, the same everything comes back. Reincarnation means this soul goes from one body to another and then kind of starts all over again. When a potential has been actualized in the one soul, there is no turning back, they'll say. Now, there are details of this, and this is something philosophical, and we don't want to get into that. But all in all, these scholars say reincarnation is wrong, and we don't believe in it. Why? Because when a soul has actualized its potentiality, there is no going back to potentiality again. If potential is actualized, it's actualized, it's there. So what does it mean that a soul goes another body? If a soul goes in another body and starts all over again, then that means potentiality. To actuality, to potentiality again is a problem. He says, in Raj'a we don't have this. That same soul, with its actuality, comes back again. Just lives on this earth longer. Nothing else has changed really. If it's possible on the day of resurrection, it is also possible before the day of resurrection. Allah can do that if He wills. Okay, S sister asks, sorry I'm new to this topic and listening in late, but did you mention, with the imams be, will the imams be resurrected before the last Imam Mahdi? No. So, let's talk about when this raj'ah takes place, according once again to our, these scholars who are getting it from these hadiths. They will say, and he said this I think in the beginning of the article, yeah, say uh, hadiths transmitted in the Shi'i tradition maintain that the first day which is the day of Raj'ah, let's just call it that, the day of Raj'ah pertains to the period after the Dhuhr, or the appearance of the Mahdi, the 12th Imam, and before the day of resurrection. So, when Imam Mahdi returns, based on these hadiths, that as I said, there's a lot of them, and so that's why our scholars say, you can't ignore them either. Um, they say and hold that once the 12th Imam returns, after he passes away, others are going to come instead. Others are going to come back and will be revived after him. So it falls after the Mahdi salam's time all the way till resurrection time. And even during the Mahdi's time salam. I hope that answers your question. We're about to end this article and this topic. So if you have any other questions, make sure to send them in because I'm about to move on. Um, it says the the principal. So I read this. The principal authority for upholding, or the principal reason for upholding, the validity of the doctrine of Raj'a comes from the revival of the dead in past communities. One and two, the bodily, bodily resurrection on the day of judgment. These two are proof that God can do it before the day of resurrection as well. Indeed, one might regard the, the Raj'a as a minor foreshadowing of that ultimate resurrection on the Day of Judgment, at which all, without exception, will be brought back to life. And this is something that people like Allama Tabatabai and others have also alluded to, uh, that the Raj'ah is a mini version of Qiyamah. Alright. There is an extensive debate regarding Raj'ah and detailed explanations of its different aspects. In the Shi'i books of Qur'anic commentary, Hadith and theology. Excuse me, I read that sentence wrong, I think. There's an extensive debate regarding Raj'ah and detailed explanations of its different aspects. I guess it's supposed to say it can be found in the Shi'i books of Quranic commentary, Hadith and theology. The sentence, uh, the translation, the sentence isn't complete. All right. In Shi'i sources, so he's saying, look, this is a hard topic, it's, it's, it's up for debate as well, and people can discuss the different details of it, and to do that you have to have a grasp of Qur'anic tafsir, hadith, and theology. In Shi'i sources, there are also transmitted sayings and hadiths regarding this question that have the highest degree of confirmation, tawatur, 
More than 30 hadith scholars and over 50 books have transmitted such hadith. So this is the important part. Maybe it would have been better if he said this in the beginning. That look, this is not just your everyday normal topic that we're talking about here, that we have two, three, four hadiths on. No, this is something that we have many hadiths on. 30 hadith transmitters, uh, hadith muhadiths, uh, and more than 50 books have narrated these hadiths. So it's, it reaches a point of tawatur, he, he claims. That it reaches a point where you just can't turn your back on these hadiths and just say, oh, maybe they're wrong, maybe it was you know, miscommunicated, maybe it was made up. No, no, no. You can say that about two hadith. You can say that about four hadith. But when it reaches this number, you're sure that not all of these different hadith narrators in all of these different books are going to be making something up or are going to be mistaken about something. So I think personally, it would have been good if he said this in the beginning so people take it serious from the start. They don't think that, okay, this is the idea, this is this concept of raj'ah, but you know, in the end, he's going to probably tell us, but yeah, we have three hadiths on it, you know? No, no. This way, people will take the, the, the conversation serious from the get go. All right. If there are no more questions in that regard, let's move on to um, the next topic at hand. And that is, and I don't know if I'll finish it today, but let's see how far we get. Maybe we will finish it. It is article number 130. And that has to do with the very important and controversial topic of Adalat al-Sahaba. The righteousness, if I, can, if, I, if I can call it that, and the justness of the Sahaba. Okay, so before I get into that, the sister asks, is the article already translated in English? If so, can you post it later? No, this comes from a book, sister, that we've been covering for these past uh, 40-something sessions. Uh, Doctrines of Shi'i Islam You can find it online I think there's a PDF of it online as well And some people have purchased it from Amazon Maybe, I don't know But yeah, th this is a book that's that's translated By Atullah Jafar Subhani This book is Alright, one second here Brother is asking Okay, so this has to do with our previous topic. So before we get into Adalat al-Sahaba, let's talk about this. Let's try to answer this question. He says, so similar to the last question, for those regular humans who live post any person's resurrection, how are they judged? Because if people are being resurrected left and right, it would seem the whole supernatural question is answered and apparent. And so it doesn't take much faith to be a believer. How, much, how would those people be judged? Unlike Isa resurrected someone, the new Lazarus will be on YouTube. <laughs> All right. I don't know. I feel like I feel like uh, this question uh, uh, has been answered kind of through what you know we've discussed already, and uh, the answer to the previous question, as you said, it's very similar to the previous question. All right. So if it's okay, let's move on to this uh, this next article. As I said, it's a controversial one. It's an important one. It's a relevant one. And it is one that our Shia brothers and sisters have to be kind of familiar with. Why? Because you set foot into uh, a setting where Muslims are who are not all Shia. This question will be thrown your way definitely if it's a setting where people want to discuss matters of faith and denomination. And so the question will be thrown at the Shi'i right away that... Do you revere and respect the Sahaba, the companions of Rasulullah? That will be the question. Lots of times that is asked. Now, another question that might be asked as well is a little more extreme than this one. I'm not even going to word it. I'm not going to verbalize it because um, it's very it's very upsetting that we have we have given an image of ourselves out to the world that we would be such that we can get very disrespectful sometimes even and use certain language that is not promoted by Ahlul Bayt not promoted by the Holy Prophet and not promoted by the Qur'an Anyway, this Adalat al-Sahaba has to do with the idea that um, what he wants to discuss here and what he wants to say is look people 
The Sahaba, the companions of the Prophet, are very, very much revered by the Shi'i school, just like they're revered in the Sunni school of thought. And just because someone's a companion of Rasulullah doesn't mean that now we don't like him. The Shia don't like him. Astaghfirullah, Astaghfirullah, Astaghfirullah. No way that is true in any way. And this is where those who are not from the Shi'i school who are impartial must be careful how they word you know, the Shia beliefs, if they are the ones who are transmitting Shia beliefs to others and explaining it to others. Because it's a touchy subject, and if it's not worded properly, it can cause problems. Those who are not impartial, those who are biased, those who might want to give the Shia a bad name, it's a different story. They will word it in a way that will sound like the Shia are waiting to hear the word companion of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and then just, you know, get all disrespectful and stuff. But the right way to word it is this. Being a Sahabi of Rasulullah is a great honor. Definitely one of those things that inshallah can get a person into Jannah if they've lived up to that companionship and what it, what it calls for. But at the same time, on the Day of Judgment, no one can claim that I was a companion so I'm good to go to Jannah. That's not going to be enough either. Their actions will be put under the microscope just like everyone else's actions. That's number one. So that's for the Akhirah. Some people might not believe in that part of it. They say, no, no, their actions will be uh, reckoned as well on the Day of Judgment like everyone else. But we believe that in this life, we are not to uh, judge any of those companions of Rasulullah. If a person was and qualifies as a companion of Rasulullah, a Sahabi, then just when it comes to what they do and what they did in the past, mind your own business, don't get into that. They are good to go when it comes to decisions they've made in this life. Don't question their intentions. Don't say that this person might have been good, this person might have been bad. They're all righteous. Adalat al-Sahaba means that they're all adil in this life. They're all adil. They're all people that can be followed, be, take, be taken as an example. Now this is a principle that we have to see. Is it coming from the Qur'an or is it coming from those universal hadith of Rasulullah that all schools of thought believe in and will follow? Or is it no, coming from something else? This topic is one that volumes and volumes and volumes have been written on in the Shi'i school and in the Sunni school. One person will write 20 volumes, another person will come and co have a commentary on those 20 volumes and make it 50 volumes, things like that we have brothers and sisters, that will discuss whether this is true or not. Uh, this idea of Adalat al-Sahaba. It's something that is ongoing and will go on, I believe, till the Day of Judgment or till the return of the 12th Imam. Uh, one of these two. And so, having said that, I'm going to get into the actual article and read it in these last 10-15 minutes we have. It says, the way they've translated Adalat al-Sahaba is respect for the companions. As I said, Adalat al-Sahaba means the righteousness. Okay? and the justness of the companions of Rasulullah It doesn't mean respect for companions, but this is how they've titled it. Adalat al-Sahaba is a title in theological books. It says, The companions and friends of the Prophet who believed in him and who derived wisdom from his presence received from us the Shia and a special reverence. Alright, so... Give me one second here to make sure we're still connected. Sorry, we had a little glitch. Um, so it says, Ayatollah Subhani says here, the companions and friends of the Prophet who believed in him and who derived wisdom from his presence received from us the Shia and a special reverence. Whether they be amongst those martyred at the battles of Badr, Uhud, Ahzab, and Hunayn 
or of those who remained alive after the passing away of the Holy Prophet. Because some might believe that, okay, the Shia, they revere the Sahaba until the death of the Prophet, but after that they hate them or something. Astaghfirullah. No. All of them, insofar as they were the companions of the Prophet and believed in him, deserve our respect. And there is no true Muslim in the world that would speak badly of the companions or express unkind opinions about them. And should anyone claim that a group of Muslims do in fact indulge in such criticisms, such claims would be baseless. In other words, he's saying if someone says the Shia do this, this is what the Shia believe in, he says no, this is wrong. Just because someone is a Sahabi does not mean that you just now is, that they're not respected anymore. That's, that's really something dumb to believe in. It's, he says here, it's such criticism claims will be baseless. As if the Shia are waiting to find out who a companion of Rasulullah is so that they can disrespect that person. No. Being a companion of Rasulullah in and of itself is not going to entail any of that nonsense. But alongside this issue, he says, there is another question which should be addressed without prejudice. Sentimentalism or bitterness. It, shouldn't be, it, should, it should be devoid of any of this. Were all the companions equally just, pious, and devoid of sin? This is the question. This is the key question right here. It is clear that seeing the Prophet and keeping his company, despite being a great honor, cannot be seen as rendering a person immune from sin. We can't therefore regard all of the companions in exactly the same light. This is the topic sentence. This is the theme right here. This is it. That look, you can't just brush everyone, uh, paint everyone with the same brush here and just be like, okay, they're companion, so they're all equally good. No. As all being all equally just, pious, and shorn of all sinfulness. For according to the testimony of the Qur'an, so he takes the discussion to the Qur'an, in spite of their having the honor of being companions, they are divided into different categories as regards faith and hypocrisy and in respect of obedience and disobedience to God and His Prophet. He says, look at the Qur'an. The Qur'an speaks about how there are some around you, O Prophet of Allah, who are munafiqun, for example. Well, they're seeing the Prophet, they're in His presence, so they might qualify as companions, yet the Qur'an refers to them as hypocrites. Who are they? This is not something to talk about right now. Right now we're just discussing in theory, is it possible for someone to see the Prophet, be with the Prophet, and be a companion? Now, our dear brothers of Ahl-Sunnah might say that yeah, if they're a hypocrite and we know they're a hypocrite, we'll put them aside. And they're right, I agree with them on this one. And so what Ayatollah Subhani here is saying, he's not saying that there will be companions who are hypocrites or are actual true companions. I think what he's alluding to here is that if our definition of being a companion is those who were with the Prophet and saw him, and that's it, then yes, we can, we can categorize that into righteous and unrighteous. Just because you saw the Prophet doesn't really mean much, he's saying. But brothers and sisters, we have to understand, let me say this before I go on, that if we're going to speak like this, we can't just sit here and be like, see how obvious it is, see we're on the right we're, we're on the right path, we got it right, they got it wrong. No, 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 they have very good answers as well. This is an ongoing debate and discussion. We have to understand it, we have to respect that as well. Each side has its own arguments. And for us, as people of intellect, it is for us and upon us to look at the reasoning of each side and see which one makes more sense to us and adhere to that. And, and, and put our trust in, in, in Allah that he, we have found the right path, inshallah. Someone might say, oh look, the Qur'an says this, so look, how dare they go against the Qur'an? Well, they have their own understanding as well. They have answers to these, these things that we're saying. We have to understand that. We have to, and that's why Atullah Subhan doesn't get into the details. Because he knows there's a lot of details here. He's just giving us, he's just scratching the surface a little bit. So that we have an idea of what the discussion kind of looks like to have an idea of what the Shi'i school is going to push for, push for and what their arguments are going to be. So, he says, because they are divided into different categories, faith and hypocrisy, obedience and disobedience to God and His Prophet. Taking due account of this differentiation, it cannot be said that they are all as one, 
each one of them being as just and as pious as the next. This is where I need to explain this, uh, give an example of what he's trying to say here. For example, the Shi'i school will say, it is very clear to me that when Ali ibn Abi Talib is fighting Muawiyah in the battle of Safin, it is very obvious to me that I can't say they're both, they're both just. One side has to be the problematic side. And for that they'll also you know, cite a hadith by the Holy Prophet that he said to Ammar bin Yasir that look, if I got the words correct, that the transgressing lot will be the ones who kill you. And we all know in the Battle of Safin, Ammar bin Yasir is killed by the army of, of Muawiyah. Right? So this is what the Shia will say. Is that one is going to be in the wrong, another is going to be in the right. <clears throat> but you will find that other schools of thought will say that no, no, no. They were both doing their, they, they both did their due diligence. They both came to a conclusion. We cannot question their intentions. They were both, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you what I heard one of these uh, Kuwaiti sheikhs say once in his, one of his YouTube videos. He said that one was more in the right, one was less in the right. Yeah, so that's how some, I'm not going to say all, but some might uh, word it. So we have to understand that that is a thing. Alright, brother is asking, what is the Shia definition of what a companion is versus the Sunni? For Sunnis, I've heard they take even something like infants alive in the time and who were in his presence as being companions, which I'm not sure is accurate as to their beliefs. Do we have a more specific criteria? Look, as I said, there's volumes of books written. What I do know and what I have seen is that even when it comes to the Sunni school, there might be a difference of opinion as to what exactly defines a companion of Rasulullah. I can't tell you right now what the mainstream believes, but usually what we hear is that if they were Muslim during the time of the Holy Prophet and they saw him, they were with him, and they died Muslim themselves, then they are considered a Sahabi of the Holy Prophet. This is what I usually hear. Um, but once again, I am very, very cautious when I want to speak on behalf of another faith or another denomination of Islam. Yeah, and I and this is I find it that this is the way we have to deal with this these types of matters, and uh, the the same expectation goes for other scholars when they're speaking about the Shi'i school or other faiths like Christianity and Judaism. Same thing. So yeah, um, I I do remember I was watching one of the Shi'i scholars where he was pulling up a lot of the different books of of Sunni school of the Sunni school of thought where he was trying to show that look there isn't a very concrete definition of what a Sahabi is. Um, but there's always a mainstream. We have to uh, understand that. And as I said, what I hear usually is what I said. You are Muslim during the time that you saw the Prophet and then you, you, you died a Muslim as well. That should be enough. Anyway, um, the thing is that, oh, we have another question now. Up to how many generations after the Prophet's death were people considered Sahaba? Um, Look, it doesn't matter how many generations. If you saw the Prophet and you were Muslim, you're a Sahabi, right? So you might be first generation Muslim, but you're living amongst third generation Muslims. Like Jabir ibn Abdullah al-Ansari. He lived very long. He was living during, he was alive even during Imam al-Baqir's time when Imam al-Baqir was young. And so that is a third generation uh, individual or maybe fourth generation even Imam al-Baqir. So... It doesn't matter which generation you're from, as long as you saw the Holy Prophet. Yeah. You might be second generation, but you saw the Holy Prophet. So for example, Abdullah bin Zubair, a person like Abdullah bin Abbas, these companions of Rasulullah, they were very young when the Prophet passed away. Uh, maybe in their teens, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And so they are still considered Sahaba. Hassanain alayhim salam they have their own, of course, status as Ashabul Kisa and the, 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 the sons of the Holy Prophet. But other than that, they might be referred to as also companions of Rasulullah but while they were children. Now, the brother who was asking his question before this, do we have, uh, he said, uh, this is something I skipped, what is the Shia definition? The Shia, I will tell you right now, this is my understanding, we don't have a definition for Sahaba. Do you know why? Because... Sahabi for us is not something special that will 
deserve a certain, well, it deserves reverence, as I said, and respect. But well, it's not something, it's not a category that we feel Islam has put out there versus other categories of people. Yeah, for us to even try to figure out who, okay, who is a Sahabi then? Yeah, but in the Sunni school of thought, it's a little different. In the, in the Sunni school of thought, you will have this title of Sahabi, this category of Sahabis, who will have Adala, which you can't question, which, um, yeah, which you can't question. There's one more thing I wanted to mention, I forgot. Which you can't question, and other things that come along with it. Oh, this is, this is what I was going to say. Which you can get the religion from. We get our, the tenets of our faith from who? From the Ahlul Bayt. And the Imams of Ahlul Bayt, of course. They will get theirs from the uh, Khulafa, for example. From the Sahaba, for example. They will say that this Sahabi did it like this, that Sahabi did it like that. So for them, Sahabi is, is a real thing that entails a lot of rules. For us, we don't have such a category of individuals that has special, uh, that, that is somewhere in that hierarchy of Islam, Allah the Prophet. We have Allah Prophet Imams, they have Allah Prophet and Sahaba. Okay, that's how, that's how I've understood it so far uh, in the interaction that I've had. And so the same way we have to identify who are the Imams because we have that title of Imam in our faith. They have to figure out who the Sahabi, Sahaba are because for them, Sahabi is also uh, something that's up there in that hierarchy. Uh, if, if, if that's a good, for lack of better terminology, of course, that hierarchy. Alright, so um, they won't worry about what Imam means for them because they don't have that concept. We have it, so we worry about it. You get what I'm saying? Hopefully it's clear. Okay, let me scroll down. I think we have a few more questions here. Alright, so what is Adala, sister asks? As I said, Adala means that they're good to go. Maybe in the hereafter, that means they're good to go to Jannah. And here, mostly what Adala to Sahaba means is it refers to in this life. That in this life, they no matter what happens, at the end of the day, you can't question them. You can't question their righteousness, let's say. So even if Muawiyah is fighting Ali ibn Abi Talib, Muawiyah cannot be questioned like, what are you doing Muawiyah? Like, call him out. You can't do that because he's a Sahabi. And a Sahabi means that he's Adil. If he's doing something, he's doing it for God. He's doing it um, such in a such manner, such a manner that you can't question his intentions. Something like that. Once again, I don't want to. I'm just saying it the way I've understood it. Right. The best thing to do is to actually look in uh, the Sunni sources themselves and see what they say in that regard. Exactly what Adalat al-Sahaba means. And I will tell you, there is a minority in the Sunni school who will not believe in such, a, in such a rule. They will not believe in it. They will, for example, revere the first three khulafa, yeah, the first three khalifas. But when it comes to Muawiyah, for example, they say, no, Muawiyah, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't uh, follow him, we don't respect him. Um, so this is, the, and, they're, and they're Sunni. Yeah, so, but the majority, and I would say the mainstream, they have this idea of Adalat al-Sahaba, it seems. All right, we're getting a lot of questions. Our time is up, but I'm gonna I'm gonna keep going through these questions because um, I, I feel like we're pretty engaged right now. <sighs> okay, so could you please explain what is the basis of the Ahlus Sunnah position of creating a category for Sahaba? Is it based on Quranic ayat and ahadith? Yes, that's what it is. It is based on Quranic ayat and ahadith. Very simple. I would say most of it comes from the ahadith, but the verses of Quran that are cited, they are cited usually to show that yes, Allah loves the Sahaba a lot, he loves the companions of Rasulullah a lot, and we also believe in that. But as we shall see as this article goes on, and we're not going to finish this article, I'm going to leave it for next week, that we believe that, for example, when the verse says, Allah loves these Sahaba when they are doing, giving the Prophet bay'ah under the tree in the bay'ah to Ridwan, that the verse means that Allah loves them in that moment. It doesn't mean that, okay, now that He loves them in that moment, He's going to love them forever if they maybe commit sins in the future. That's what the Shi'i school will say in response. But what I'm trying to say is this, that yes, it comes from the Qur'an and 
a hadith. Um, and so, as I said, it's going to go back. It, it'll, it will go back and forth for a while. Yeah, what about the verse that praises the Muhajirin and the Ansar to be followed? The, the Ansar that will follow after. Very good point, Brother Muhammad. Yes, so that's also one thing they'll use. The verse that says the Al-Muhajirin wal Ansar. Yeah. Anyway, all of these verses, we've all heard of them before. Um, and the Shi'i school will have answers to that as well. That yes, we will revere them to this extent though, not more. That's how much we get out of the verse. The Sunni school will say we get more out of this verse. And both sides have to respect each other and their understanding of the verses. This is very this is this is the most the more important part I would say. Alright, so sister is saying salam with regards to some, such as uh, the first Khalifa, Abu Bakr. With regards to some companions, a colleague of mine said that they are guaranteed to go to heaven, so how can some Shias disrespect them? I answered that there are reasons for why they are unhappy with them. How else would you suggest to answer? I am currently training in a school which is a Sunni mainstream school. Well, that, I think you, the way you said it was very nice. You have to say, listen sister, or whoever it is that I'm speaking to. At the end of the day, for some of these uh, Shia, it has been established that this person might have made mistakes in the future and done things that we disagree with. And so that's why they don't have that respect that other schools of thought might have. But this should not be... If a person doesn't like one of these Sahaba, for example, it's not because they're Sahaba. No, it's because they've been convinced that this person did some wrong things. And because of those wrong things, they, don't have, they have an issue with that person. And we have no other way to explain it to them. The same way they might have issues with some of the people that we revere. Yes... And we, we might find, we might get upset about it, but we have to also understand that they don't disrespect or dislike some of the people that we might revere because, because they were righteous. No, they would also dislike them because they feel that that person wasn't righteous. So we have to understand that each side is, this is where they're coming from. Now in regards to how some will go to Jannah for sure, it's guaranteed. This also, sister, you have to mention this, that we don't believe in that hadith that speaks of al-asharah al-mubashshareena bil-jannah that the ten who were guaranteed paradise that Abdul Rahman bin Auf said that the Holy Prophet said there are ten people who will go to Jannah let me pull up the, the hadith you can just google it either uh, even um, al-asharah al-mubashshareen bil-jannah who are they? So there's a, this is the Arabic Wikipedia here I got. It says, رواه كل من عبد الرحمن بن عوف وسعيد بن زيد عن النبي. So two of the people that are mentioned in that hadith that says they are guaranteed to go to Jannah, two of those ten are narrators of the hadith itself, which uh, Shia find to be a problem, that, that itself being a problem. Um, but the hadith says that there are ten individuals that will go to Jannah no matter what. Who are they? That the Holy Prophet said, Abu Bakr fil Jannah wa Umar fil Jannah We all know what fil Jannah means. That means they are in Jannah. So Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman fil Jannah, Aliyun fil Jannah, Talha fil Jannah, was Zubair fil Jannah. Talha and Zubair got killed in the fight against Ali ibn Abi Talib in the Battle of Jaman. So here you can see it very clearly that um, that this idea of okay they're both in the they're they're both in the right is really showing itself that they're all in Jannah although they got killed against another one of these Sahaba who was guaranteed Jannah which is Ali alayhi Although there will be an answer that will be given as well that they will give they'll say well Talha and Zubair especially Zubair they were killed outside of the battlefield. And Ali ibn Abi Talib, when he found out some people had killed them, he scolded them, he got very angry at them for killing Zubair. But anyway, that's a long story I don't want to get into. Zubair fil Jannah, Abdul Rahman bin Auf fil Jannah. This Abdul Rahman is one of the ones who's actually narrating the hadith. Sa'd bin Abi Waqqas fil Jannah. Was Sa'id bin Zayd fil Jannah, the second one that I said who's narrated the hadith. So one of those, two of those ten are narrators of this hadith itself. Abu Ubaidah bin al-Jarrah fil Jannah. Alright, so 
sister, the ones who tell you that how can they, you know, not like some of these individuals while they've all been guaranteed Jannah, well the hadith that says they are guaranteed Jannah is something that the Shia school doesn't believe in. Like right here in this Arabic Wikipedia page, when you scroll down a little bit, it says, uh, that the Shia, the 12 Shias believe that this is an invalid hadith and that uh, they consider it a fabricated hadith. So this is, people have to understand, each school of thought has its own hadiths, each school of thought has its own, wherever it gets its religion and faith from and tenets of the faith from, and they will adhere to whatever is in their sources and whatever they understand from the Qur'an, each side has to try their best to find the truth, of course. Okay, so I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you for your questions. These were wonderful questions, alhamdulillah, and I know it's a touchy subject. He's going to wrap it up in one article. And so he's, going to, he's just going to discuss some of the main aspects that we have in this regard. Um, and um, we'll pick up where we left off, inshallah, next week. This last question I'll address and then we'll end. Uh, brother is asking, according to Shia, is it ever possible to be guaranteed Jannah, like even for the Prophets? I don't remember any hadith or verse of the Qur'an that we might believe in that says something like that. I might be wrong. Uh, so that's uh, that's something to look into. But yes, we are a, a lot more strict when it comes to these things. That for sure. Inshallah. So, so I'm going to continue this topic next week as well. Uh, just don't tune in late so that we have to go over time. <laughs> tune in on time because we're going to pick up where we left off, inshallah, with this topic. Until next week, keep us in your du'as. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.